and all, this is Pastor Rick Stevens and you're listening to Faith Is. Yes, you've come to the right place because this is the place that we understand that faith in God really matters and we understand that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And I think that's so critical for these days that we have confidence in what God says, in who God is, and that God will keep his promises. And in case, and it's possible you're a little bit discouraged today, I just want to remind you, and maybe you haven't, but I have read the back of the book. And according to the back of the book, I'm referring to the Bible, we win. And that is some very good news. So, take heart. Don't lose hope. Have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. Absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. Don't waver on that. He wants us to trust him and we can trust him. Well, I want to jump into some important things today. And I want to talk particularly about one uh, subject. But in order to kind of prepare us for that, I want to circle back to something that, well, it keeps resonating in my mind and in my heart. And I don't know if I get fixated on things because I get fixated on them. I I tend to think that God reminds us of things he wants us to remember so we don't forget. And the thing that keeps popping up in my mind and the thing that I keep noticing, particularly in the popular conversation, in the news reports and so forth, a little bit in the ordinariness of life that you and I live out, but not so much there. I don't encounter it there. At least I don't think I do. But I'm referring to the lying that seems to be epidemic these days. Now, it used to be that to be called a liar was a very serious and offensive charge. And it still is very serious, and it should be offensive. The trouble is we've kind of gotten used to people lying to us and accepted it, dare I say we've accepted it as normal? Well, I hope to shout, we don't want it to be normal. Let's not let it be normal to us. We should always be sensitive to it and alert to it and aware of it so that when we hear lying, it just gets our attention and we recognize it for what it is. And we've talked before, it may have been a while since I've mentioned it. Actually, I don't remember really when I mentioned it the last time. But I was thinking about it again this week and in in connection with a very important emphasis this weekend across the country. But I went looking and I remembered Proverbs chapter 6, starting with verse 16. And I'm going to read from the New Revised Standard Version, updated edition. And it talks here about, things that the Lord hates. Now, we don't often think about God hating things, but that's the way it says it here in Proverbs. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. There's a good word for us. We don't use that word often, that word abomination. Lying should become, if it isn't already, an abomination to us because it's an abomination to God. He he reinforces his dislike for lying when he says, in Proverbs, that the Lord hates it and that it's an abomination to him. Go on ahead with verse, verse 17. Well, 16 says there are seven things that are an abomination. Then he starts to list them in verse 17. 
haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that hurry to run to evil, a lying witness who testifies falsely, and one who sows discord in a family. Well, those are pretty serious things. If God, if God finds them hateful, if they're an abomination to him, we ought to take them seriously. And I noticed as I was looking at this list that really the reference to lying shows up twice. He starts out by saying haughty eyes, a lying tongue. There's the first one, a lying tongue. And then down a little later in verse 19, a lying witness who testifies falsely. Now, I don't know if that gets your attention, but I think it should. And we need to pay attention to the, to the lies that go on around us and not take them lightly, not consider them normal. Now, part of the reason that I bring that up is because lying is, like I said, seems to be epidemic, and partly because I want to talk about some lies specifically related to the abortion industry and the, and the abortion lobby. As you know, abortion has become a hot topic in this country. And before we go down that road, I want to ask you an important question. Uh, I think it's got an obvious answer, but it seems that people don't come to that conclusion quite as easily as I think we should. So is, uh, is the issue of abortion a moral issue, an issue of right and wrong, or is the issue of, an, of abortion a political issue? Well, I don't think it should take us very long to say, hold on a minute, it's an intensely moral issue. It is an issue of right and wrong because we understand that the Bible says, thou shalt not kill. The Bible says we should not kill each other, and we see no place in the Bible where it makes an exception for a baby who has not yet been born. So it's clearly a moral question. Now, some people get a little nervous at this point because they say, well, aren't you getting into politics? Well, yeah, a little bit, but only because politics deals with this issue and needs to deal with it as a moral issue, a question of right and wrong. And before God, is it right to kill a baby or is it wrong to kill a baby? So it becomes a moral issue before it becomes a political issue. The political issue is simply how are we going to manage that awful practice of abortion in a civil society? So this is, in many places across the country, this is the weekend that we pause to remember the sanctity of human life. That human life matters from conception to natural death. You will often hear that phrase, and it's a good one. Because we don't stand in the place of God determining who should live and who should die. That's not our place at all. The Creator can handle that a lot better than you and I can. I don't even want to go there. I want to recognize that God values human life. People matter to God, as we sometimes say. And from conception to natural death, we should value people as well. And we should remind each other that this is a question of right and wrong, not a question of politics. It's not a question of do I align with this political movement or that political movement of that politician or the other politician. That's not it at all. It's not about political parties. It's about right and wrong. 
And because it's an issue of right and wrong, any squeamish people out there who say they don't want to get involved in politics can just put that aside because we're not talking politics. We're talking right versus wrong, good versus evil. And you have to face up to that, and you have to approach it on that basis. I have no desire to promote a political perspective. I believe there are some better choices when it comes to public policy and some really bad ones. But what I most believe is that we must follow what God says is right and wrong. And clearly the Bible tells us that we should not kill another human being. We should not murder another human being. And because we value the Bible, and in our church this is the year of the Bible, and because part of that value is the recognition that the Bible is God's word to us, then we don't allow anyone, anyone for any reason to convince us that discussions about abortion are political. No, they are not. They are about right and wrong, and you have to start from that place. If it's right to kill a baby, then you can begin to engage the political argument based on saying it's right. If it's wrong to kill a baby, and it clearly is based on the Bible, then you can engage the political conversation from that moral perspective. But all of it will be from a moral perspective, a question of right and wrong, good versus evil. So let's just talk plainly a little bit about this. And I've gotten some information from the Alliance Defending Freedom. They have been at the forefront of defending life across the country before the United States Supreme Court recently with the Dobbs decision. You may remember hearing about that. We'll talk a little bit more about that in just a minute. But I want you to realize something important about Planned Parenthood. They have been advocating to kill babies advocating for abortion for a very long time across the country. Well, how much money do you think Planned Parenthood received tax money, tax dollars in 2021? You got a guess? I'm waiting. Go ahead. Make your guess. Think about it a little bit. How much do you think they collected in tax dollars for performing abortions? Well, I'll I'll help you a little bit so you can calculate that. They performed in 2020, and the, and the amount they received in 2021 was based on their performance in 2020. In, in the year 2020, Planned Parenthood performed 383,460 abortions. That's a lot. 383,460 abortions. That's greater than the population of my city here in Cape Coral, Florida. That's a lot of babies killed. So, I ask you to think, how much money do you think they collected? They raked into their coffers from tax money, from the money that you and I have to pay under threat of force. How much do you think they collected in the year 2021 for those 383,460 abortions performed in 2020? All right, you've had time to think about that. They collected 633 million tax dollars. 633 million tax dollars in just one year from our tax money for performing abortions. Now, I'm here to argue that that's an abomination. That's a, that's a, 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 a fact to be grieved. That's, that's a regret that we should all feel. 
that our government, through state and federal decision-making, paid for abortions to the tune of $633 million tax dollars. It should sadden all of us. Now, let's take it a little bit farther just so you'll understand Planned Parenthood is not the benign organization they try to tell you they are. Abortion makes up nearly 96% of all Planned Parenthood services. Now, I don't know how you call yourselves Planned Parenthood when you're killing the babies that would make men and women parents, but nonetheless, they, they report that abortion, providing abortions, makes up nearly 96% of all of their services. However, they're recognizing that abortion may be diminishing. Not sure of that. We'll talk about some of those things. Maybe a diminishing. So listen to this. Their organization, they're shifting their business model to chemical abortions. That means pills, by the way. Absolutely dreadful and dangerous to our young, young women. Absolutely horrifying. They're shifting to chemical abortions, gender transition surgeries, and giving minors and distressed adults cross-sex hormones. You see, Planned Parenthood is following the money. And they want to provide the services that they can collect big money for providing. So you and I need to be aware of that. And, and we need to be equipped. We need to be conscious of the things that are going on so that we are not deceived by all of this. And so the Alliance Defending Freedom has announced, they put out a, a piece of paper, a document, that talks about the abortion lobby's top five lies. And so that's why I started talking about lying, how reprehensible it is. And so I want to go through these myths or lies one by one, just so you will know what they are and and talk just a little bit about them so that we can come to some kind of um, better position to speak up, to defend babies, to defend God's view that babies matter and that people matter to him. And we should never tolerate in a civil society just from Planned Parenthood, 383,460 abortions. That's just, just, that's just over-the-top awful. So here, here we go. Let's talk about these five lies that Alliance Defending Freedom has identified. And they're an excellent organization, by the way. And you might want to look into them if you're not familiar with them. Get acquainted. Get on their mailing list. I, I recommend them highly. I've had some, some personal dealings with them on some issues. And uh, they have been absolutely impressive with their faithfulness to God, their desire to serve him. And, and I just recommend them to you to take a look. I've met many of the people that are that are in key positions in their organization, and they're, they're top notch. So the, the abortion lobby's top five lies. Myth one, number one, in Dobbs versus Jackson, that's the United States Supreme Court decision, in Dobbs versus Jackson, Women's Health Organization, the U.S. Supreme Court outlawed abortion. Well, that's a myth. They did not outlaw abortion. Now, some people are saying it that way, but they don't tell you the truth. They lie. The court's decision in the Dobbs case, when they overturned the Roe versus Wade decision, then it gave the states the responsibility to protect life or to embrace abortion. Nothing in the Constitution of the United States, text or history, confers a right to abortion. The court recognized that finally and correctly, 
And so now the abortion responsibility goes to the states. Now, a lot of people who have paid a little bit of attention to this whole issue have said, oh, good, the court overturned the Roe decision. We're back to the place where abortion's not allowed. And, and lots of people capitalized on that terrible misinformation in, in trying to say abortion is now outlawed in the United States. Well, it's not outlawed. The decision now goes back to the states. And so we need to be aware that our states are going to be making decisions, and they have been already, and they will even more, on whether we're going to protect human life or embrace abortion. Very significant. Pay attention in your state. I'm paying attention in Florida. Very significant. Myth number two from the Alliance Defending Freedom. Most Americans favored keeping Roe versus Wade. Well, I don't believe that's true at all. Now, you, you're smart. You pay attention. I think most politicians would have favored keeping the Roe versus Wade decision in place because they could play both sides of the street. And that's why it's important for us in our states to pay attention to what's going on. You see, as long as Roe was in place, a politician could get out there and say they were pro-life, but there's nothing I can do because of the Supreme Court decision. I'm pro-life, but my hands are tied because of what the court said. I want to preserve babies, but I can't because the court won't let me. Well, now that argument is simply not available. And a lot of people who said they were pro-life were secretly reluctant to take a steadfast, forthright position on that. Now they need to. Now they're going to have to. So you watch your state legislature. I'm watching ours. Our state legislature meets in session in a few weeks. I'm watching to see if they do anything. We have a, an, an abortion law that's kind of good. It was designed and passed last year so that it wouldn't conflict with Supreme Court precedent. But now everything has changed, and we're going to find out whether our state political leaders here in Florida really are pro-life. We're going to find out for sure. Now, back to the myth. Most Americans favored keeping Roe versus Wade. I don't think most Americans did because when Americans realized that, that the Roe decision allowed for abortion on demand, all the way up from the second trimester forward, they realized that's killing babies and they didn't approve of that. They realized it was a moral evil. So let me ask you. Since Roe allowed abortion on demand up until birth, let me ask you, what other nations in the world allowed abortion up until the moment of birth? Do you know what, what other nations did? Have you thought about that? I'll, I'll wait just a minute. You can think about that. I, I wouldn't have known that till I read that. I, I just wasn't aware. But guess what? The United States, when the Roe decision was in effect, was one of just six nations in the world to allow abortion on demand. We were right up there with China and North Korea in allowing abortion on demand. That's just, that's just awful. And when, when Americans realize what's going on, they do not favor keeping the Roe decision in place. Myth number three, women receiving treatment for an ectopic pregnancy may be prosecuted for having an abortion in pro-life states. That's simply a, a complete fabrication, a complete fabrication. An abortion is the direct and intentional taking of an unborn child's life. Every single state 
had laws that allowed for medical emergencies and exceptions to save the life of the mother. And that would apply to something called an ectopic pregnancy. The abortion industry, the people that want abortion kept in place, were simply using that to make you afraid. They were promoting bad science. They were lying to you to convince you that there was danger here and you needed to step up and agree with them. It's simply not true. Every state had laws that protected the life of the mother. Myth number four, abortions are safe for women. I don't know if you remember, it's been quite a number of years ago, but the pro-abortion crowd, particularly the politicians, used to like to say they wanted to keep abortion safe, legal, and rare. Well, at the time, it was not safe, and in some places it wasn't legal, and certainly it wasn't as rare as we would like it to be. They used that as talking points that they thought would resonate and often did resonate with the American voter. Well, the truth of the matter is abortion simply is not safe for women today, yesterday, any day. Abortions put women at a greater risk of death, illness, and psychological trauma. According to research published in the National Library of Medicine, many women who have abortions go on to suffer emotional and psychological pain, including suicidal ideas. Even the pro-abortion, get this, even the pro-abortion Guttmacher Institute notes that the risk of a mother dying from an abortion rises exponentially by more than 2,200% between the 8th and 18th week of her pregnancy. Abortions have never been safe. We should not fall into that trap. They simply are risky in so many ways. And it's probably not a surprise to many of you that a woman who has an abortion risks never being able to have children again. It's just that risky of a procedure. And we need to step up and talk about that. Myth number five, abortion empowers women. Well, what a myth. I fail to see. I, I can't hardly comprehend how we could ever think that allowing one human being to kill another is empowering. That's just, that's just frightening to say that abortion empowers women. You know, women are fully capable of being mothers, of living successful, happy lives. Why are we diminishing women thinking they just can't, that somehow a baby is going to be difficult for them? There, there are hundreds of thousands of women that will step up and say, it was the best day of my life. Well, maybe other than marrying their husband, if they're careful about how they say it. But they'll, they'll talk about having a baby as one of the best days of their life. They can't believe the change it brought in their life. They can't imagine it. Now, this might be a little hard to understand as I describe it, but I'll do my best to make it simple and clear. Let's just use, for example, there, say that there are 100 women. And all of those women chose an abortion. When they were surveyed and asked about it, the surveyors discovered that if those women could have had different circumstances in their life, 75 out of the 100 women would not have chosen to have an abortion. Think about that. That is a huge percentage. Given the different circumstances, they would have kept the baby. 
So what that tells us is that that women understand the importance of that. They understand this is a human life. They, they get so much right about this. And what the rest of us can do is can help make their circumstances a little easier and make it possible. Let's not compound a difficult time by making it more difficult. Let's help them change their lives, repent. We'll talk about that a little later in the program too. Let's help them change their lives, repent, and get started on the right track by preserving the life of their baby and actually having that baby, bringing it home and enjoying that life. So we need to pay attention. We need to value that. This is the weekend that we, we recognize the sanctity of human life and this, this moral issue of abortion, this issue that is clearly an issue of right and wrong, should not escape our notice. And we should pause to recognize that God cares about people and we need to care about them too. And we shouldn't let the lies that people tell us get in the way of that. We shouldn't let the lies that people tell us confuse us or get us off track. No, we need to think clearly about this. We need to recognize it for what it is. And we need to stand up and proclaim the reality that people matter to God and that abortion is a moral evil. And we need to stay away from it. We need to put a stop to it. We need to all step up and say, no, it's wrong. We're going to find a better way. Now, part of that is also recognizing who human beings are, who people are. You know, it's relatively easy for us to say, well, people matter. And it's relatively easy for us to point out why we like this person and that person and the other people. But really, the value of human life goes much deeper than that. Goes much, much deeper than that goes all the way back to creation. And so much of what we need to understand about life and the way it needs to be comes from the early pages of Genesis and the story of creation. So, you know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and specifically, he created people. I'm not going to go through all of the creation story. You can look that up. You know something about it. But he said something very important when he created people. Genesis Chapter 1, verse 26, God says, Let us make humans in our image according to our likeness. Now, the verse goes on a little farther. I'm just going to stop there because that's the key part. Let us make humans in our image according to our likeness. What does that mean? Well, the, the simple way we say it is that it means that people reflect the image and likeness of God. Now, what does that mean? Well, get ready for a long and involved conversation and study. If you want to know what all that means, it, it takes you a lot of places and, and, and beneficial. A lot of interesting things that people have come up with to, to try to say this is why or this is how people reflect the image and likeness of God. Without going into all those details, let's make sure that we just at least grasp some of what that means. I was listening to a podcast this week. I listened to a number of them. And they, they benefit me. And this one benefits me too. But, but the guy on the podcast, he made a reference he's made before about the brain of people. And he talked about our monkey brain, meaning we people have monkey brains. And I don't know exactly where this guy comes from in terms of his understanding of God or, or grasp of what it means to to be created 
in the image of God, but based upon him saying and referring to our brains as monkey brains, it makes me think he really hasn't wrestled with this idea that, that we humans were created in the image and likeness of God. We have enormous capabilities because God created us that way. It's not about human potential. It's about the reflection of God in us. And, and to think that God, in his wisdom, took the risk to create us and to create us in the image and likeness of God so that we, male and female, the human race, we are God's representatives, representatives in the created order, and we reflect the creator because he made us to be that way. Now, now that's, just, that's just stunning. You know, he, he made us to have rational thinking, and that's undoubtedly part of it. He gave us a choice. Now, think about that. God didn't have to give people a choice, but he gave us the ability to choose right and wrong, good and evil. It allowed us to have a conception of what it means to be good and what it means to be evil. We reflect the image and likeness of God. That's stunning, and that's the moral foundation, I think, that has eroded and led us to things like abortion on demand. Because people have tended to say, well, we're just another mammal. No, we are not. God created you special. He created all people special. He created us to reflect his image. And we should not forget that. Well, we're going to take a break, and we're going to remember that, and we're going to be back in just a few minutes. Don't go away. I'm Pastor Rick. You wouldn't go a day without brushing your teeth or washing your hands. What about washing your nose? I mean, your nose does filter the air you breathe, air loaded with bacteria, viruses, and irritants. Make nasal hygiene part of your routine with Clear. No messy bottles to fill, no drowning sensation. Clear is a natural drug-free saline with the added benefit of xylitol, which blocks bacterial and viral adhesion. Available in stores and online at clear.com. That is X-L-E-A-R.com. We know you love the versatility and portability of the Genesis Fogger, but sometimes you just want to set it and forget it. Well, we heard you. Introducing the UX4 HOCL Atomizer, this stationary unit quietly protects you and is perfect for smaller spaces. With over a quarter million units sold in Japan, it's now available in the United States. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud to see the UX4 in action and receive a 15% discount on either Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you're ready for anything. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep is infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's fast-paced digital age makes it tougher. You're not alone. Poor sleep affects over 70% of us. The CDC even labeled insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. Advanced nutrition company, Healthy Cell, created REM sleep to help you quickly fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake refreshed. Unlike other supplements that don't work, REM sleep is not a pill. 
It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients, supporting all four stages of sleep using calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support. Over a thousand reviews with an average star rating of over 4.4 proves it works. Take back your sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. It was Henry Wadsworth Longfellow that said, Lives of great men all remind us we can make our lives sublime, and departing, leave behind us footprints on the sands of time. America Out Loud Talk Radio, the liberty and justice for all. All right, we are back. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and you're listening to Faith Is. This is the place where we challenge each other, stretch each other to have a deeper, stronger sense of faith, or as we say, absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God, because faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. Now, all of you who are thinkers out there, you know faith is more than that, and we can talk about it in different kinds of ways, but I have found that very helpful to me to recognize that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. It just it just somehow uh, connects with me and helps, and maybe it'll help you. Well, let's take a opportunity now to go forward in the story of Jesus. At our church, and maybe at yours, this is the time of the year when we focus on telling the story of Jesus. And so we're doing that here on the program, week by week, we're telling the story of Jesus. It started back at the beginning of Advent. Advent is that period of time, those weeks leading up to Christmas, where we anticipate and prepare for the coming of Jesus. We prepare to celebrate Christmas, his birth, but we also, during that period of time, Think about and anticipate, prepare for the return of Jesus because he will come again. Both of those themes are important in Advent. Then, of course, during the Christmas season, we celebrate the arrival of Jesus and we rejoice with the shepherds and all of that. And then we move to the season that we remind ourselves in the story of Jesus that he is revealed to the world. It starts with Jesus being revealed to the wise men. And so we understand that that Jesus came for everyone. And so the wise men represent his revelation to the nations of the world, to the Gentiles, to everybody everywhere at all time. So everybody would know about Jesus. Very important conception. And then we read through the story of Jesus. And a little bit at a time, Jesus is revealed to the people around him. A significant event takes place at the baptism of Jesus when um, John reluctantly baptizes Jesus, and God recognizes this is his beloved son. The heavens are torn apart. The Holy Spirit comes down in the form of a dove and and rests on and enters into Jesus. Now he has the Holy Spirit of God clear to everyone. And then God speaks and announces, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. So that's a revelation of Jesus to the people. And John even says later that that's how he knew 
that Jesus was the one when the heavens were torn open and the Holy Spirit came down because God had told him to watch for that. Really interesting that John says that. Well, we're continuing along the line of, of the revelation of Jesus, and we're going to go to Matthew chapter 4 this week. Matthew chapter 4 is another little story that takes place in the unfolding drama of Jesus, and we're going to start with Matthew chapter 4, verse 12, and I'm going to read from the New Revised Standard Version Updated Edition. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. He left Nazareth and made his home in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, on the road by the sea, across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to proclaim, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in the boat with their father Zebedee, mending their nets, and he called to them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. So now in a very different way, Jesus is revealing himself to the people, revealing himself so that they will know who he is. Now it's very interesting, this opens with the, with the comment that Jesus withdrew to Galilee. Well, withdrew, that's an interesting word. He went from where he was to Galilee, from Nazareth then to Capernaum, withdrew. Now, why did he withdraw? Well, he withdrew because he heard that John had been arrested. Now, it could be as simple as what we say, he went from here to there, withdrew. But that word that's used, withdrew, in the ancient language, often is associated with avoiding some kind of danger. In fact, just a little bit before that in Matthew's Gospel, when Joseph and Mary heard about Herod, when the wise men heard from God in a dream, the same word is used to warn them to go a different way. And they withdrew. Joseph and Mary were warned and went to Egypt to get away from Herod's wrath. So we have a sense here that, that there's a recognition of danger that John was arrested. And so Jesus, having identified with what John did, he withdrew perhaps in recognition of that danger, perhaps also in recognition that he needed to begin his ministry in a wider sense. Nazareth in those days was a smaller town, and Jesus went from Nazareth to Capernaum, Capernaum being a larger town. Now, that's an interesting change, and, and for good reasons he would have done that, because he needed to be where people were to hear his message. Uh, me, I'd think about that, and I think, wow, I live in kind of a big place. I might like a small town someday, maybe even one small enough that doesn't have a traffic light. 
because we have a lot of traffic around here. But Jesus went to where the message could be heard, and he went to Capernaum. Now, you can go to Capernaum today. I was privileged to do that many years ago when I went to Israel. It was quite fascinating to walk among the ancient ruins in that town of Capernaum, to go to the synagogue where Jesus would have spoken, to walk down the street, which wasn't very far, to Peter's house where Jesus would have gone, and to realize that we were walking in the footsteps of history because much of what happened in the story of Jesus happened around that area of Galilee and in Capernaum. It is on the Sea of Galilee, right on that shoreline. We did go when we were in that area to, to a specific place that's been preserved in recognition of biblical events. So when the story tells us that, that Jesus went here, we, we know where that is. And we also understand that when the story is told, because of the way Matthew tells it, it includes the revelation of Jesus' ministry to his people, the Jewish people, and we recognize that the coming of Jesus was in the cradle of Judaism. He lived out what had been prepared as part of the Jewish legacy. But in this area, there were a lot of Gentiles, a lot of people that had been what we call Hellenized or forced into becoming more Greek than Jewish. And so he came for all of those people. And the prophet Isaiah is quoted here by Matthew when it says that people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. So that's a pretty good metaphor, pretty good imagery there to say, here are these people that, that were in darkness, but now Jesus comes to give them the light of the gospel, comes to this significant trade route, comes to this place where people could hear the message and understand what's going on. And that would include both the Jewish people and the Gentiles. Now, it's also very interesting to me, and this just jumped out at me. Maybe it did you as I, as I read it. In verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to proclaim, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, there's quite a bit going on here in that little statement, and, and I just want you to think about that a little bit and, uh, and ask yourself the question, where have I heard that before? Well, isn't that very similar to what John said when he called the people to repentance, to get ready for the coming, the coming king, the coming of the kingdom of God, the coming of Messiah, Jesus? Isn't that the same idea that he communicated? And didn't Jesus, by virtue of presenting himself to John for baptism, put himself in the same stream of that message? Yeah, of course he did. We remember that. And now... Very plainly, Jesus says, repent. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Very similar to what Mark said about Jesus as he unfolded his ministry to the people. So it's an important message. Yeah, Mark says it in a little different words than Matthew does, but it's the same message. What does he mean? Okay, let's start with the kingdom of heaven has come near. We kind of wonder about that because it hadn't really completely come near. And what's Jesus talking about? Well, Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven has come near. Here I am. So he represented in his life and his coming into the world, the coming of the kingdom of heaven into our world. So there can be no doubt that when John said the kingdom of heaven is coming and Jesus says it's come near, it's it's close. It was close to those people. It was so close they could reach out and touch the kingdom of heaven in the person of Jesus. 
And it's still true for us. Now, we can't reach out and touch Jesus because he's gone back to be with the Father. We get that. But we live in the time that the kingdom of heaven has come near because Jesus came and changed everything. But we keep having this nagging thought, don't we? Maybe you don't, but I think a lot of us do. We keep having this nagging thought, well, if the kingdom of heaven is so near, where is it already? Well, that's a very good question. There was a tradition among Jews of that day, faithful people of God, that they would pray every day that God's kingdom would come. And they had a sense that he would come and be near them, but there was a double side of that, that he would come and then one day he would fully continue or satisfy their longing for a better way to live. So they had that same sense that we do. Yes, the kingdom has come, but it is coming. And so they saw Jesus come, but they knew there was more because all of the world's wrongs hadn't been made right. And so they had that sense, and that's true for us. When Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is coming near, he means it's coming near, it's close to us. We can participate in the kingdom of heaven. That's really what we're doing when we participate in the people of God, in the church. That's one reason church is so important. You are going to church, aren't you? You have found a church that teaches the Bible, where you can fit in, where you can make a contribution, where you can give your tithes and offerings, where you can volunteer to serve. You have found a church, haven't you? Good, I'm glad to hear that. And, and if you haven't, do it. Don't delay at all. Remember, you're not looking for the church that's closest to your house. You're looking for the church that's closest to the Bible. And I really want to really emphasize that, that. There's no sense of being a follower of Jesus apart from connection to the people of God, the church. There's no biblical sense of that at all. So find a church. If you haven't, take it from me. It'll be an adventure. There will be ups and downs. I've been there. But the church matters. It matters to God. Don't reject the church. Jesus loves the church. And if Jesus loves the church, we should too. Right? Right. Okay. Well, where were we? Well, we were talking about how the kingdom of God comes near. And Jesus said, you know, you need to repent. You need to change your life and get ready for that because the kingdom of God has come near. It's a very important message for him. And for us. So he makes that statement, and then we hear a little story about what happened after that, because that statement is just put out there in, in the midst of what I read in verse 17. And then there's a story of Jesus walking by the Sea of Galilee. Remember, Capernaum was on the Sea of Galilee. He's walking by the Sea of Galilee, and he sees a couple of guys fishing, Simon and Andrew. And he says to them, follow me. And by the way, the Simon here, yes, is Peter. Sometimes we call him Simon Peter. Sometimes we call him Simon. Sometimes we call him Peter. It's all very interesting. Don't be confused. Don't be dismayed. They're there fishing as Jesus walks by. Walks up to them and sees them fishing, and he says, come follow me. Wow, that's kind of an interesting statement. Well, it wasn't really as unusual in those days as we might think. Uh, It's pretty unusual in fact, very unusual for a rabbi, Jesus, to call his own disciples. Often a potential disciple would ask to be included. But here Jesus calls them, and, and the Bible says, the text says, immediately they left their nets and followed him. So we need to reflect on that a little bit. So Jesus walks up out of the blue, 
Well, maybe not out of the blue. Remember, he went to Galilee. They may have been familiar with Jesus. They may have heard him teach. They may have had an introduction to him, enough for them to think about what it means that Jesus is saying and what that means for them and for the people of Israel, for the people everywhere. We don't know that for sure, but it's not at all beyond the realm of likelihood. Sometimes we hear people say, well, just they had never heard of Jesus. He just walks up and says, come follow me, and they did. Well, I don't think that's likely based upon the way the text reads, the way the story is told. But it is unusual that Jesus invites his own disciples, usually disciples applied to be, to be a disciple of a rabbi. But he invites them, and they immediately respond and leave their nets and go. Now, that's significant because people say, well, they just left one dead end for another maybe better opportunity. Well, that's not so because in those days, fishermen made a better-than-average living. So they were doing okay in the fishing business, better than a lot of other people, but they left it to follow Jesus. Uh, Part of my question then became, what made becoming a fisher of men more attractive than fishing in the typical sense of catching fish? And it's difficult to come up with a definitive answer, but it seems that the attractiveness was not about the potential for a better life, but about the the intrigue of the kingdom of God coming near. And maybe, this is the implication from the way Matthew tells the story, maybe what they realized was this is an invitation to be up close to the kingdom of God, and of course it was, because Jesus brought the kingdom of God near. So they left what they knew, their business, and they went to follow Jesus. Could that give us a clue as to what Jesus meant when he said, repent, the kingdom of heaven has come near? Yeah, maybe so. Well, and then Jesus went on and he saw two other brothers, James and John, in their boat with the father, with their father, Zebedee. And they were mending their nets. Now, In those days, people who fished for a living, they fished at night, and then during the day, they would mend their equipment or mend their nets. And so here they are in the boat with their father mending their nets. That would be kind of a typical practice. That wouldn't be too unusual. And so Jesus called them as well. Again, did they know who Jesus was? Matthew doesn't say yes. He doesn't say no. But we do know they immediately left and followed Jesus. Again, could it be Because Jesus' message was, repent, the kingdom of God has come near. Could it be that they recognized that this was an opportunity to be near the kingdom of God? That's a staggering opportunity when you think about it. That is just a staggering opportunity. And so they left and followed Jesus. They changed their life. They repented and followed Jesus. Wow, that's interesting doesn't say they repented. Well, yes, it does, because we need to think about that idea of repentance a little bit. Repentance clearly means, all through the scriptures, a change of direction. You don't keep going this way. You change and go a different way. So if you're going north, you might turn and go south or east or west, but you don't keep going the way you've been going. It's a clear, distinct change. So, When Jesus comes along and asks them to make a change in their life, he really was asking them to repent and to change their life and follow him. 
interesting. We don't tend to connect that idea of repent with that, but often in ancient times, in this literature, when a teacher would say something, they would then follow it with an illustration to help us understand what they were saying. So when Jesus says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near, and then he tells the story of calling these four men to be his disciples, hmm, Matthew must be trying to tell us something about this idea of repentance. And I've thought about this idea of repentance for a while now. It keeps popping up. Have you noticed that in the last little bit? We read the scriptures and it keeps popping up. Repent, repent, repent. Now, people have a lot of ideas what repent means. And for a long time, I guess I was convinced that repent meant feeling sorry for the things you've done that you shouldn't have done or the things that you didn't do that you should have done. Repent for sin. Feel sorry for sin. And indeed, I hope we all feel sorry for the dumb stuff we've done and the intentional hurt we've caused and all of the stuff that we call sin. But what does it mean, repent? Well, we talked about changing. Walk one way and then walk another. That's repentance. It's to walk a different way. It's also interesting that that Jesus here says that first. It's the first thing Jesus says when it talks about his, his message that he's proclaiming. Verse 17, from that time Jesus began to proclaim. Wait for it. What did he proclaim? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Uh, isn't that interesting? We sometimes think we need to help people uh, kind of understand things and give them opportunity to make baby steps toward changing, Jesus just flat out says, repent, change. It's the first thing he says, boom, right out of the gate. Interesting. It's a big challenge, but you know, one of the things that that reminds me here uh, when Jesus says that is that that's what men do. Men step up to big challenges. So men, if you're out there, you want a big challenge, change your life. Think about what that meant and how it was lived out by these four men. Well, Jesus said that, change your life walk a different way. Now, sometimes sometimes you will hear people say repent is something like return from exile. Well, in a sense, when we change our life and walk a different way, if we've been far from God and we turn and walk with God, then we're returning from exile or separation from God. Uh, it's kind of an interesting metaphor, and it may be worthwhile to think about a little bit. There's nothing in the text here that gives us any evidence for that. Only in the story of the Old Testament do we get some sense of that. But clearly it's about changing, and clearly it's about living a life differently. Now, as I sit here and as you think about this, probably a lot of us are thinking, well, I repented. I'm a follower of Jesus. Why do we keep bumping into this in the Bible? What else does Jesus want? Well, first of all, first of all, let's get real specific about that. Have you really repented and changed your life? Now, some people think they've repented and they just kind of want to go through the motions, but they haven't really changed anything. They show up on Sunday, and that's good, keep showing up on Sunday, but they haven't really changed their life because they know God wants them to do something and they don't do it. So if you haven't really changed your life, then, then why not do it right now? Just decide, okay, you're right, Jesus is right, and him being right is what matters, not me but it's right, I need to change my life. And that's great. This message is for you. 
Now, if you've also said to yourself, well, as far as I know, I'm walking with Jesus and I'm doing what he wants me to do, then I don't want to chip away at that confidence. I want to say, great, the message is still for you. Because the reality is that we will not be perfect in this life. Repentance is a continual process. And so maybe what would help us is to realize that that we need a little change of mind about repentance and that we need to think about repentance a little differently. And, and there is, etymog- etymologically speaking, oh boy, there's a word you can hardly pronounce. Etymologically speaking, there is, there is basis for saying that Repentance is a change of mind, but maybe what we need to recognize is a change of mind that accepts the fact that God is going to continually refine our lives, and so we need to continually make those course corrections that will keep us in step with Jesus. Maybe it's not a big thing that you need to do, but maybe it's a baby step in the right direction. Maybe it's a change in attitude about some situation or someone. I don't know what it might be, but if it's a change that God is urging you to make, he changes us to make us better. And as you think about this idea of repentance, think about it this way. God loves us, and he loves us so much that we are able to repent. We are able to change. Now, some of us think that God will only love us when we change, and so we better change to get God to love us. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says God loves us so much that his love supports us and enables us to change, to repent. So it's the love of God that provides the grace of God that enables the people of God to fulfill the will of God. And so now we can become what God wants us to be because of the love God has for us. So as you think about repentance this week, you think first, God loves me enough to want to make my life better. And that means I will repent. Well, I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. That's a lot for you to think about and process, and we'll do some more of that next week. I hope you'll join us.